Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, if you'd open it up to the book of 1 John, uh, it's toward the back of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, that's okay. We've got some, some tables right behind each section of seats that have Bibles on them. Uh, if you want to go grab one, uh, that's fine. You can go grab it. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those. Let it be our gift to you. Um, I'd encourage you as we read it this morning to take it home and continue to read it. Um, if, if you don't want to do that, I think what we'll do will come up on the screen, so you should be okay. Uh, we like to take our time generally throughout the year looking at particular books of the Bible in total. So we'll start at the beginning of a book and we will read and teach our way all the way through that book so that we can understand what God is saying through that book of the Bible in its context and for us. So right now we're working through 1 John. If you've been with us or maybe if you haven't, if you open up your Bibles to 1 John, you'll see if you haven't already noticed that it's a very short book. Uh, it's not a long book. It, it's very short. In fact, if you were to sit down casually, you could probably read the book of 1 John in 15 to 20 minutes. And I'm not talking about speed reading, and I'm not talking about detailed study. I'm just talking about reading. Uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And so here's what I want to encourage you in from this point forward in the series. I want to encourage you to find a time in your day, every single day, to read the book of 1 John. Now, I'm not talking about picking 1 John apart getting out your Greek lexicons and, and unpacking all the words. I'm just talking about reading it. 15 to 20 minutes. Just read the book of 1 John every single day. If you have a habit of reading the Bible already, if you, if you follow a particular um, system of reading the Bible every day, praise God. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying take 15 or 20 minutes, depending on how fast you read, and read the book of 1 John. Maybe when you get in bed at night, just read the book of 1 John. And here's why. As you begin to read it every single day, especially because it's such a compact and relatively short book, if you'll do this every day as we, as we teach through 1 John, you will be absolutely amazed, not only at the level of retention that you'll have with 1 John, just how much you'll actually begin to learn and memorize just by reading it over and over, but you'll be absolutely amazed that the Spirit of God works with the Word of God to cultivate your soul. Just the things that the Spirit of God, as you're reading His Word, begins to work in your mind and in your heart. You'll be absolutely amazed. And you'll come in here ready to show me things I should be preaching about. So I just want to encourage you, take time through this series from now on to just read it every day. It's not difficult. It's not hard. Uh, you will absolutely be amazed and you will be blessed by what the Spirit of God does with his word if you commit yourself to it. So uh, that's my general encouragement. And what we're going to do this morning, uh, getting to where we're going in 1 John, we're in, we're in the, the third verse of chapter 2 as we're reading and studying it. What I want to do is I want to go back to the beginning. And, and because it's such a relatively concise book, I want to read where we have been up to where we are this morning, uh, kind of showing you just in broad strokes what it is we've seen, because John has been very careful and very particular up to this point to lay a foundation for this church that's essential for what he's going to be saying in the rest of the letter. And if we remember correctly that John wrote this letter to this church, and most likely in Ephesus, in an effort to reinforce their faith. Uh, the ground under which they were standing and the, the world around them was, was shaky. And John wanted to reinforce the foundation on which they had believed. They would have confidence and assurance in whom they have believed. So this is what he's after. And so he's actually taking careful aim to lay a foundation to reinforce their assurance and their faith. And, and we've been trying to take careful aim and, and take time to unpack what he's saying so that the foundation could be laid for us to take in what he's going to say in the rest of the letter. So this morning, I want to read from 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, up to where we are in chapter 2, verse 3, and then what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I just want to paint 
a big picture of what we've already seen. And you can go back and listen to the messages we've already taught about this. But if you've got it open, we're just going to start there. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how it goes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And we talked uh, for an entire week about just these verses, how the subject of John's proclamation, what he's testifying to the church here in the beginning and throughout the book, the subject of his proclamation is the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the subject that John is gonna constantly come back to for this church as a foundation of their confidence and their faith. Jesus is what John is talking about. And he goes on to say, so that, this is why I proclaimed Jesus to you and testify to the truthfulness of Jesus' life and his ministry and his work in your life so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. He's pointing them back to Jesus as the foundation for something unbelievably, almost unspeakable that God has granted to his people to be brought into the fellowship that God has with himself in the Trinity. The fellowship that has always existed for all of eternity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Those who are followers of Christ and have have believed on the person and work of Jesus, God has brought into that very fellowship. That because of Jesus, we can experience the fellowship that God has within himself. And this is a privilege of the believer, of the follower of Christ. And John is trying to direct this church back to that privilege. He says that, and we're writing these things. This is why, in verse 4. We're writing these things, reminding you, pointing you, taking you back here so that our joy may be complete. Our joy may be complete. He's pointing them back to this reality of fellowship that's, that's built and founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ so that that awareness and that delight that the follower of Christ has in, in who Jesus is and the relationship that he's being brought into with the Godhead himself cultivates and produces in our hearts and in our lives a joy a joy that's not conditional. It's not a joy built around our circumstances and situations. It's a joy whose foundation is the very person of God himself. John is trying to direct our attention back to this, that we might experience and taste and delight in and this joy that God has for us. And so he goes on. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him, talking about Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John wants to be clear regarding this fellowship. There's a few things that John wants them to be clear about in regards to this fellowship that God is bringing his people into. The first thing they've got to be clear about is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is utterly holy and utterly pure. And John said, there's a few things you've got to know about that and realize about that when you're having this, in regards to this relationship with God. He goes on to say this, that if we say you have this fellowship with God, in whom is light and there is no darkness at all, while you walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. 
John wants him to be clear that what disrupts this joy, what erodes this joy, what, what robs this joy is sin. And he wants God's people to have a right understanding of their sin in relation to a right understanding of who God is, the one who they're being brought into fellowship with. You see, that there are people who have been a part of this church, who, who, had, who had confessed the same things, who had eaten the same meals, who had, who had taken the same participation in the same communion, who had probably watched each other's kids and, and done life with each other, who had now left this church, not to go to another church, but to do something totally in and of itself that was separate, that said, you know what, we praise God for the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. Yes, he's forgiven us of our sins, and yes, he's cleansed our soul from sin. Therefore, we can go do whatever we want. We're clean. God has cleaned us, so therefore we can go do whatever it is we want in this life with our, our bodies and with our breath. And John's saying, no, 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 no. You've got to understand something about this fellowship with God. You've got to understand who he is and how you come to him. He is holy, and he is pure, and in him there is no darkness. And if you say that you have fellowship with him, you are relating with God as he relates with himself and the Trinity that you are brought into this relationship while you walk in the darkness. You are self-deceived. You lie. And ultimately, the truth of God is not in you. And worse, you call God a liar. You say that God's revelation of himself as holy, it's rubbish. He can coexist with darkness. You call God's wisdom in sending his son to die in your place for your sins on the cross foolishness. It's foolishness. John said, if you say this and you live this way, that he has cleansed me and now that I don't deal with sin, I don't have sin, there's no sin in me and I relate with God, then you're deceived. You're deceived. So he goes on. Chapter two, verse one. After saying that God is holy and sin is real and that you still sin, but you can deal honestly and hopefully and realistically with that sin because of Jesus. John says, my little children, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's almost like John's going, now don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't take what I'm saying and, and run away with it and, and, and hear something and do something that I'm actually not saying. I'm not saying that because of what God has done in Jesus for us, that sin is no longer a big deal. It's huge. It is a serious issue. It is so serious and so offensive to the holiness of God, it cost him the life of his own son. I'm not saying that your sin is not serious, so don't disregard it. In fact, it's so serious. What I want to encourage you in is to make it your aim to not sin anymore. Make it your aim, John says, to not sin anymore. And he goes on to give them the foundation for their pursuit of this life in Christ. To give them the only proper and right motivation for this pursuit of life here on this earth as a follower of Christ. He says, if anyone does sin, because you will. Remember to say you have no sin is foolishness. The truth of God isn't in you if you say that. The law of indwelling sin is still alive and real in you. But if you sin, remember you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If, if you are a follower of Christ, John says, when you sin in thought, in word, in deed, in action, in attitude, in, in motivation, in desire, he says don't disregard your sin, don't look over your sin, don't try to redefine your sin, but at the same time don't be devastated 
crushed and despondent because of it. Remember that you have an advocate before the Father. Someone stands before the Father in your place, and he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who came and lived a life of perfect delight and obedience to the will of God in your place. The life that God had created you in the beginning to live. Remember that he stands before the one who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all in your place. And not only that, he is the propitiation for your sins, John says in verse two. And not only your sins, but for the sins of the world. He not only lived the life that God created you to live, he then willingly laid his life down on that cross to die to pay the price for your sin and for the life that you chose to live instead. That on that cross, God exhausted his righteous and his holy and his just wrath for your sin on the body of his son, Jesus Christ. And because he was righteous and had lived the life that you were created to live, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price for your, your sin and my sin. That's what propitiation means. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God in our place and averted the wrath of God for our sins, for those who place their faith in the person and work of Jesus. John said, if you are a follower of Christ, remember this, you, you sin. Don't disregard it. It is a big deal. It is a serious deal if you're gonna claim to have fellowship with God in whom there is no darkness. Your sin is a big deal. Don't act like it's not. Don't disregard it. Don't redefine it. Don't become so despondent over it that you're despairing, though. Remember, remember, you have an advocate. You have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the propitiation for your sins. And John told them in chapter one, if you confess your sin, if you then agree with God about your sin, call it what it is, own it for what it is. Confess your sin, agree with God about it. God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. And the blood of his son Jesus, his propitiation for your sins will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is the foundation John is laying for this church. This is what he wants them to be confident in, to be ever reminded of, for their eyes to ever be focused on when talking about this fellowship that they have with God that produces this gratitude for God's grace. And this gratitude for God's grace that produces this joy that's unspeakable, unshakable, and eternal because it's not rooted in your circumstances, but it's rooted in the very person and work of God himself. John said, this is love. We talked about it last week. He'll say it in chapter four. This is the love of God. Not that you did something to earn what God did for you for your sins. This is love. Not that you loved God so much that he felt compelled to then respond in this way with Jesus. No, in this is love. Not that you love God, but that he loved you. That he loved us. And he sent his son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the love of God that John is constantly trying to point their eyes back to, point their souls back to. When we see the love of God for what it really is in Christ, when we see the grace of God for what it is in relation to the magnitude and the seriousness of our sin, and we receive God's work through Jesus for our sins, we receive that by faith. What begins to happen in our own hearts and our own souls, which is one of the beautiful works and promises of the gospel itself, is that new desires begin to be cultivated in our heart. New affections for things that honor God begin to be cultivated in our souls. The very spiritual taste buds of our soul get rewired and get reworked. I mean, this was the promise of God that he gave his people all the way back in the Old Testament through Ezekiel. I mean, just, just listen to what 
Ezekiel said, Ezekiel chapter 36, for those of you that are interested, we'll start in verse 25. God said, I will cleanse, I will sprinkle water on you and you shall be clean of all of your uncleanliness. From all of your idols, I will cleanse you. In verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And look at what he says, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. John is constantly pointing the people of God back to the love of God that's seen in our propitiation for our sins in his son Jesus, in the gospel, that gratitude for the grace of God would produce in us a joy in the person of God that would then compel us out of a new desire and a new affection for the glory of God to be obedient to the commands of God. That's what John is constantly pointing his people back to. This is the foundation that he's laying for this church. This is the foundation that he's trying to put in place for their confidence in whom they have believed, for their sense of assurance in whom they have believed. This is what he's after. This is what the great Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. And in the gospel, when we see the love of God for what it is, we see our, the seriousness of our, of what our sin for what it is. And we see the magnitude of the grace of God in the face of that. And gratitude begins to be cultivated in that. And the desires of our hearts are changed. The affections of our soul are changed. The taste buds of our soul are changed. A new affection takes root in our soul. A new affection in who God is for us through Jesus that expels, that, that expels, I should say, I'm bad at grammar. Our old affections. Grammarians, don't send me a note. It expels those affections, those lesser affections, those lesser comforts. This is what the work of the gospel does in our hearts and this is what John is constantly bringing his people back to. Remember what he said, our sin is real. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. The truth of God is not in you. Don't be self-deceived. It is a daily struggle and battle to remind yourself the magnitude of God's grace in the face of your own awareness of your sin. And so John is constantly focusing them back on this. And out of gratitude for God's grace, he wants them to see that the proper response is a soul and affection that's cultivated and rewired towards new obedience to the glory of God. This is what he's into. And this is just staggering. I mean, it's really honestly just staggering news for the follower of Christ. This is why John has been so slow at building this and why we've taken so long to be so particular about all this. There's sermons about each of those things in the past few weeks because he's laying a foundation for where he's going because the reality of it is as staggering as that news is to us and as, as a follower of Christ, as much as we cherish that, the real reality of it is more often than we care to admit there are moments in our lives and circumstances in our lives when our confidence, when our confidence in those things leaks. And it slowly begins to leak and, and drip out of our soul. We may not even be aware of it at first. And all of a sudden something happens or something changes about our life and our sense of assurance 
Not that what God has said about himself and about Jesus is true. It's not that our assurance on that may be changed, but our assurance that it's actually true for us gets compromised. Our assurance that what God has said about himself and about his son for us is on shaky ground, if we're really honest. There are gonna be times when we wonder not if what God has said is true, but is it really true for me? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have you ever wondered or doubted not that what God said is true, but whether it's actually been true for you. This is what John wants to give you confidence in this morning. And maybe you haven't doubted that. Maybe you've, you've never lacked a sense of assurance if you're a follower of Christ. Maybe nothing's ever come into your life that, that has caused you to wonder not if what God said is true, but whether it's true for you. Well, let me give you another encouragement to what John is gonna say this morning. It comes from the Apostle Paul. He says this in 2 Corinthians 13, talking to the church. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is actually in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So I hope you will find out that we and you have not failed the test. So if you've struggled with the assurance of whether or not God's good news in Christ is true for you really, John has something for you this morning. And if you've never struggled with that, let Paul encourage you in what John has for you this morning. And this is where he goes in verse three. Look at what he says. Chapter two, verse three. By this, John says, we know that we have come to know him. Now, if you've been around here for a long time, this is a joke around my house and, and in the office sometimes. If you've been around here at all, you know that one of my favorite tools in speaking is repetition. That's why I love John so much. We're gonna teach on everything we've already taught again probably three more times in this book. But I repeat things a lot because I honestly believe by the 15th and 16th time I say them, you might actually hear me. It might actually begin to sink in. So I, I say things a lot. And I'm gonna say what I'm about to say probably six more times, maybe 10 more times this morning. Verse three, by this we know that we have come to know him. John is not saying this is how you come to know God. He's not going to say in just a second, this is how you come to know God at first. This is not how you come to get saved. John is saying this is how you know that you know God. I wish there was a way that I could go into the Bible and actually change the capitalization of these words and, and say, and by this you know, little k, that you have come to know, all caps, know him. This is how you can come to know that you've really known him. And it's not a matter of factual information. There are all kinds of people that have all kinds of factual knowledge about God, about his word, about the Bible, much greater knowledge than I have. I can speak even on his word probably, especially as, as a work of, of wonderful literature in a way that I, I probably can't even speak. But this is not the knowledge that John is talking about. Let me just give you a little clue from 1 John, just so you can see how books, when you read them in their entirety, can help you understand certain passages. What does he, what does he mean by actually knowing God? Is this not one of the things that we really struggle with when we, when we doubt? How, how do we know that we actually know him? 
that we know him. In, in, in chapter 4, verse 6, John says this. Just listen to the words he uses. Don't get too tripped up. I'll explain them. Chapter 4, verse 6, John says, We are of God. Whoever knows God, same word he's using here in chapter 2, whoever knows God listens to us, and he who is not of God does not listen to us. So the opposite of knowing God, the way we're talking about it, is not being of God. So knowing God, the way we're talking about it, is, is akin to being of God. He's talking about a life that is hidden in God. He's talking about a knowledge, let me say it this way, he's talking about a knowledge that can only come from experience. There's a kind of knowledge that you can have that you can't get when you read, that you can only get when you experience something. And the way I tried to explain it to the, to the first service was there's kind of a running joke in, in the office about uh, Ray and I's Monday morning conversations about sports over the weekend. Uh, what football games went on, who did what, what soccer games went on, who did this and who did that. And, and, and so try to imagine that Ray and I are having a conversation during football season in here on a Sunday. And we're back there just talking about watching these football games and just, just how difficult it has to be to be a quarterback in the NFL. You know, you drop back in the pocket, you got five receivers running everywhere, you got to go through all the reads, find the open guy while big 300-pound men are trying to take your head off. Just how hard that is, man, that's so hard. I mean, it's just so difficult. Imagine that Sunday... Maybe it was a bye week and Tom Brady decided to bring his family down to Virginia to do a historical tour of a civil war and he brought him into Redemption Hill and he heard us talking about how difficult it was to be an NFL quarterback and make those decisions that fast while people are trying to take your head off. And he smiles and he nods and he says, yeah, you, you really don't know what it's like to have to do that. I mean, you know it's hard. I mean, you know what I've got to do, but You've never had to drop back there, stand back there, watch these guys try to take your head off and then throw this ball to somebody in a window about that big. You really don't know. There's a type of knowing that comes from experience that transcends a type of intellectual knowledge. And this is what John is saying. You can, you can know, you can have assurance and confidence in your soul that you know that you have this knowledge, this relational, experiential knowledge of God, you can know that you really know him. He also says in, in verse five, second half of verse five, by this same thing he's gonna talk about in a minute, you can know with confidence and assurance, you can know that you are in him. Knowing God and knowing that you are in him are very similar things. And John said, you can know that you are actually in him, that you abide in him. And he does a great job of explaining what he means there if you actually go and read his gospel. This same John wrote the gospel of John. He was one of Jesus' closest friends, arguably his closest friend. And John was recording the words of Jesus, John chapter 13, if I'm not mistaken. And Jesus said this, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to be in Jesus, to abide in Jesus, means that you're like a branch that's attached to the vine. And to abide in him and to be in him is to be so attached to him that you become like him. That your life is now in him and his life is now in you and his character flows into your life and flows out of your life towards the good of others and the glory of God. This is what it means to be in him. And John says, you can know Whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is that's causing that leak in your 
confidence and your assurance, if you're a follower of Christ, you can know that you know him and are in him if you obey his commandments. This is the first way John says that you can actually know that you know him if we keep his commandments. Now here comes the repetition. Remember, John is not saying that you come to know Jesus through your obedience. That your obedience and your keeping the commands of God is not the way that you actually come to know God for saving faith. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is how you as a follower of Christ can know, can be assured that you actually know him. To say the opposite, to say that you, can act, that you come to know God through your obedience is heresy of the highest order. To say that in any way, shape, form, or fashion, it's your obedience and your works that brings you to that redeeming love of God is heresy of the highest order. John and Paul and the entire scriptures will have nothing to do with that. He's not saying that we come to know God by keeping his commandments, but that we can know, that you can know, that you know God, and that you are in him by looking at your obedience. John stopped one of my favorite pastors, he said that in this section of the first John, John is teaching that salvation is evidenced by obedience and in turn, obedience contributes to your assurance. It doesn't earn your salvation and it doesn't build your assurance. It's evidence, it contributes to your assurance. So let me, let me say it this way, the first contribution to your assurance that as a follower of Christ, that you can know that you know him and are in him. It's this, ask yourself this, do you delight to obey God's word? Again, repetition. John is not saying that you have to keep his commandments perfectly. He covered that in the first chapter. He said, if you say that you know him, if you're in fellowship with him, if you abide in him and yet still walk in darkness, Say you have no sin. Say you don't deal with sin. He said, you're a liar. You're self-deceived. Worse off, you call God a liar. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you look at your perfection. What he's saying is, do you have a desire to delight in the word of God? Do you have a desire to obey the word of God out of delight in God and gratitude for the grace of God to the glory of God? Does that exist in your soul when there is a genuine gratitude to God for his grace towards you in Christ and a genuine desire out of that gratitude to obey the word of God? There's a genuine desire to be obedient to the word of God out of that gratitude. John says that's evidence for you. That's a contribution for you that you can know that you actually know God and that you are actually in him. That's the evidence of a transformed life. That's the evidence of what God promises people way back in Ezekiel, that by his spirit, he would give them a new heart. That new heart would be empowered by the very spirit that raised Jesus out of the dead. That very spirit will continue to will and to work within you, giving you new desires and new affections. You would delight in the glory of God. There would be a growing gratitude for the grace of God. 
out of that gratitude for who God is for you and out of that love towards God for his grace, there would be a delight to be obedient to the word of God. The battle will still be there. John's been clear, the the law of sin in your flesh, it's still real. You will still disobey. You will still sin in motivation, in attitude, in thought because the law of sin is still at work in you. The very spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead also abides in you and he's given you new desires and a new heart. Is the desire, the desire out of gratitude for the grace of God producing an attitude in you, an affection in you to surrender to the word of God? That's why when you go back and, and look at the things that we talk about, when we talk about like embodied values, what things we want to be characterized by, we just don't, don't say we want to be people characterized by uh, the word of God. Lots of people read the word of God. Lots of people know the word of God. Lots of people know the Bible. Lots of people have more knowledge about the Bible as a book than I actually do. What we're after is, is there a surrendering of your soul to the word of God? Is there a new affection and a new delight at work within your soul that though more often than you would ever want to admit imperfectly doesn't delight in the word of God the way that God would want you to, but it's there? Do you want, do you want to obey the word of God out of gratitude for the grace of God? This is what John is saying. If that's there, you can know that you actually know him and that you are in him. Because who, whoever is in him, whoever really knows him, you know that that changes everything. It changes everything. And it reworks your desires and your delights from the inside out. What John is saying is that those evidence of those new desires, evidence of those new delights, that's, that's a contribution to your assurance doesn't earn you anything before God. But you can know that you actually know him. Verse four, he goes on to say this. Whoever says, I know him. So whoever's walking around saying, well, I know him. I got you, John, I know him. I'm, I'm in him. I, I have the life of that fellowship with the Trinity that you were talking about. That fellowship with God who is light and in him is no darkness at all. I, I know him and I, I'm in him, but Whoever says that but does not keep his commands, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. This is just, honestly, there's no, I mean, you understand this. This is, there's no clever language John's using here. This is just a, a way of depicting the modern, unfortunately, uh, evangelical hypocrisy. I mean, we're, we're all prone to it. We, we get so fixated on people having particular experiences and ascending uh, to particular knowledge that we pay no attention to whether or not that actually has transformed anything in the soul. It's so much so that for whatever st- statistics are worth, the greatest percentage of our population in this country claims to know God. Claims to be in God. If knowing God and being in God are the same thing, they claim to know God. John says, if you claim to know God, but there is no desire to be obedient to the word of God out of a delight and a gratitude for the grace of God to the glory of God, then I dare say you may be a liar. You may be a liar. And the truth of God is not in you. And I've been guilty of missing what John has just said right there as much as anybody in this room. 
He said, you could say that all day long. But if there's no change in desire, if there's no change in delight, if that delight and that gratitude for God's grace is not being evidenced in some way in your life, he said, the truth is not in you. And I have spent more time than I really ever want to admit walking around talking about myself and other people as people who have, who have the right knowledge, who, who have head knowledge but have no heart knowledge. Have you ever said that? He, he knows the truth, he just doesn't practice the truth. John says, no, he doesn't know it at all. It's not that he has the truth and he just doesn't practice it. It's not that he has the truth in his head. It just doesn't apply it to his heart. No, the truth is not in him. The one who says, I know God, I know him, I'm in him. There's no, not a shred of evidence of any delight in the word of God out of gratitude for the grace of God. John says in him, he's a liar. And the truth isn't in him. And if you think John's being picky, being cranky old Pastor John, Maybe you'll listen to Jesus. This is what Jesus said back in John's gospel. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it's him that loves me. Jesus went on to answer them, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Now again, again, John is not talking about obedience that earns salvation. Jesus is the author of, the perfecter, the foundation of your salvation. But the evidence, the evidence of that transformation of soul is to be reflected in the way that you live. This is what John is saying. Verse five, whoever keeps his word, whoever keeps not their personal word, but God's word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Let me say this as simple as I can. You ask yourself, do you, you love God? How, how, how do I know that I, I really know him? I mean, do I, am, I really, am I really in him? Are, are the promises of the gospel not just really true, but are they, are they true for, for me? Does your soul in any way, honestly, surrender to the truthfulness of his word? Do you love his word? Do you desire in any measure or delight in keeping his word? John will say in chapter five, verse three, so I won't sit on this because we're gonna come to it in a few weeks. He says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And this is what he says. And his commandments, they're not burdensome. If we know him, if we're in him, if our affections are being changed by the very spirit that raised his son from the dead, and we know him and we know the love that he has for us as he's shown us in Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins, John says, then his commands and his word won't be burdensome. In fact, there'll be a delight. There'll be a delight that begins to grow. However imperfect at times, there will be a delight for his word. It's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. Do you love him? Do you, wonder? Do you delight in his word? Is there a surrendering of your soul to his scriptures? By this, John says, we know that we are in him. Verse six, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it's almost as if John could picture somebody sitting there hearing this letter read going, okay, I'm with you, John. 
I've got you all the way through the first little part. I know him. I'm actually abiding in him. And John says, that's great. Fantastic. Your fellowship with him, your abiding in him, that'll be seen in the way that you walk. Praise God you confess to be in him. That'll be seen in the way you walk. And if you're in him, if you know him, if he's in you, if the affections and desires of your heart have been changed and are changing, and there's a delight to be obedient to his word for his glory and a gratitude for his grace in the face of your sin, then you'll walk like Jesus did. You'll live like he lived. And how did he live? I mean, just in reference to what John's talking about, how did he live? He lived in perfect obedience to the will of his father. He said, this is my food, this is my delight, this is my desire to do the will of the father. Remember, John's not talking about perfection. You won't walk like Jesus walked perfectly. Remember, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. John is after the awareness of a transformation of desire, a transformation of affection, a transformation of delight put in you by the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, a delight in obeying God for the glory of God out of gratitude for the grace of God. This is what John is talking about. This was the very promise that God gave his people all along, and God does not fail in his promises. John's saying, if it's true of you, you'll walk the way that he walked. White-knuckling a transformation of behavior and obedience so that you look like Jesus is not what he's talking about. Going back to read the Gospels and find all the things that Jesus did and go, okay, how do I do all those things right now in this day in the 21st century so that I can walk like Jesus? That's not what he's talking about. That would be akin to me realizing that the, the neighborhood Northside Garden Tour is happening and, and I need to go get the weeds out of my garden and I run back to the backyard and I look at all of our gardens and, and I take a pair of scissors and I trim all the weeds off the top so that when everybody comes over, they go, wow, stunning garden. I don't know how you do that. I mean, I fight clover and weeds and wild onions all over the place, but look at this thing, it's perfect. And I stand back there in my mind, receiving all the praise all along going, uh, yeah. Underneath the ground, what you don't know are the roots of all those weeds are just going deeper. They're just spreading wider. They're just getting closer to choking out the life of the very things I'm trying to grow from underneath. But John's not after trying to get you to white knuckle to be perfect like Jesus. He's after delight and motivation. How do you know that you know? How do you know that you're in him? Is there a transformation of desire? A transformation of Delight. Is there a desire in you to do the will of the Father for the glory of the Father that you might be conformed into the image of his Son? If, again, if statistics are of of any use and and rarely are they of ever any use because it's very hard to get an unbiased poll and an unbiased statistical analysis, but let's just say they're of some value. If they hold any value, that means that there are people in this room right now and people filling this city. You won't even get outside of Richmond. People in this room and people filling this city who profess to know God this way, to know him and to abide in him, yet there is not a shred and there never has been a shred of desire or affection 
for the glory of God and gratitude for the grace of God that produces new delight and new obedience to God in his word. And what John is saying is you don't need assurance. If that's you, assurance is not what you need. I mean, Jeremiah prophesied centuries before, woe to all the people who stand up and say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. John's saying you don't need assurance, you need the grace of God. You need to go back to the grace of God that's found in the Son of God. You need to go back to the God who is light and in whom is no darkness and look upon him till you see the seriousness of your sin. And before you're crushed by the seriousness of your sin, you need to see in this God the magnitude of his grace towards you and his son. You need to see the righteous one who lived the life that you were created to live in your place. The one who then laid his life down on the cross to exhaust the holy and just wrath of God for your sin in your place. The propitiation for your sin who God accepted and then raised him from the dead by his very spirit. The one who said that if you believe on him in his person and his work by faith, that same very spirit will come in that heart of stone with no affection towards God. He'll take it out. He'll give you a new heart. That new heart will have new desires. That new heart will have new affections. And not only will it have new affections and new desires, the very spirit of God that raised him from the dead and changed your heart will reside in you to work in you and will you towards God's very good pleasure for his glory and your joy. You don't need assurance, you need the grace of God. And he looks at the church and he says, hey, if you can say that there's a measure in you that however weak or strong at that moment, it, yes, I desire to delight in the glory of God and the commands of God and the word of God. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, the law of sin is at work in me. Everything I want to do, I can do. Everything I don't want to do, I do. Woe is me, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this law of sin? If you, if you desire to delight in the word of God and the glory of God, John says you can know. You can know by that delight that you really do know him. You really are in him. So we wrap up. Let me jump back to what Paul said. We looked at the church and looked at everybody, wherever you are on spectrums of faith and doubt, skepticism or delight. He said, examine yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Do you realize that? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And what John says is don't try to ground your assurance and your confidence on your own perfection. Your obedience is not the ground of your assurance. The perfection of Jesus is the ground for your assurance. Your delight to be obedient to the word of God is evidence that his perfection is at work in you. Don't judge it by your obedience. Don't judge it by your feeling. I mean, so many people struggle with this question of whether we really know God and whether I'm really in God because at some point in time I felt something when somebody talked about God. And whole churches spend so much time trying to manufacture and reproduce the environment and the circumstance that created the feeling, that produced the thought that is the ground for the assurance, and it's rubbish. You can't, you can't ground your assurance, John says, on the way you feel. That's not the proper foundation. The foundation for your assurance is the person and work of Christ, not the way you feel. Those of you who are married, you know what he's talking about. You wake up sometimes in the morning and you don't feel like you're married. 
I won't ask you why you feel that way, but you know what I'm talking about. Don't lie. If that became the grounds, if that became the evidence of your confidence in your marriage, that would be worrisome. That marriage is evidenced by your commitment and your loyalty, the commitments that you made. John's saying, don't judge it by your feelings. Don't look to your feelings. Don't look to your best efforts at perfection. You can know that you know him if you desire to delight in his word and be conformed to the image of his son. Jesus is the author, perfecter, and foundation of your faith and of your assurance. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I thank you first and foremost for your word. I thank you that it is your word to us that it reveals to you, to it reveals to us who you are. It reveals to us your son. It reveals to us our need for you and your grace towards us. I ask that you would do what only you can do in our hearts and in our souls, that you would conform our souls and the desires and delights of our heart and soul to delight in your word, to delight in your glory. I ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.